This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. speaking today with Mark Galley, editor-in-chief of the magazine Christianity Today and author of the new book, Karl Barth, an introductory biography for evangelicals. Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Mark Galley. He's editor-in-chief of Christianity Today. He's the author of many books, including Jesus, Mean and Wild, The Unexpected Love of an Untamable God, Beyond Bells and Smells, The Wonder and Power of Christian Liturgy, and Beautiful Orthodoxy, The Goodness, Truth, and Beauty of Life in Christ. He's just released a new book, Karl Barth, an introductory biography for evangelicals. Mark Galley, welcome to Things Not Seen. Good to be with you. Well, so for our listeners, just to start out, uh, who may be unfamiliar with 20th century Swiss theologians, why don't you give us a quick introduction? Who was Karl Barth, and, and uh, what did this man do? Well, many consider him the most important Protestant theologian in the 20th century. He turned European theology, certainly, and therefore, by extension, American theology on its head in a lot of ways. It was dominated by something we now call 19th century liberalism, which did not believe in the, the kind of cl- many of the classic Christian doctrines, let alone the miraculous nature of, of the Christian faith, uh, the resurrection, the virgin birth, uh, believed in the uh, fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man was kind of one of their, one of the slogans. Bart came along and basically questioned the presuppositions of that whole way of doing theology uh, so that his theology ends up more in the camp of traditional and classic orthodoxy, although there's quite a few significant differences. When everyone thought kind of classic Christian orthodoxy had been done away with, in a sense resurrected it in both Europe and then eventually in the United States in a form that's now called neo-orthodoxy, but I don't know that he would much appreciate that term. And when you use this term classic Christian orthodoxy, you're not talking about the Eastern Orthodox Church. So what are some of the line out for us? No, so that would be uh, certainly orthodoxy is understood in the mainstream Christian faith, uh, certainly in the West. I don't know that the East would disagree with it, but... It would be people who can, without crossing their fingers, subscribe to the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, don't particularly think it's a huge problem to believe that Jesus rose from the dead or that he was born of a virgin or or had miracles or that the traditional doctrines of justification by faith and Christ being fully God and fully man, the Trinity, these are all part and parcel of kind of a mainstream, classic, centrist Christian faith throughout the centuries. There have been people on the left of that, on the right of that, but... My understanding of Christian history, that constitutes kind of the broad center. And so when Bart began his work, and as you pick this up, Bart was reacting to a group of theologians who, I guess, in the late in the late 19th century, early part of the 20th century, had stepped away from what you're characterizing as orthodoxy, and had begun to talk about Christianity more as kind of a social 
function and more more kind of an ethical discourse? There was that, and then there was also the emphasis on religion as a subjective experience. Religion is the feeling of dependence, Schleiermacher said, one of the great theologians of the 19th century. Barth thought that was a disastrous turn because he felt it gave ammunition to Feuerbach, who, who the philosopher Feuerbach, who thought that Christians in general, religious people in, in general, there is no God. Uh, it's The only God is the God they create in their own hearts and minds. And uh, Feuerbach couldn't tell the difference between what someone believed and what was going on inside of him. Barth basically said that was a pretty accurate critique, and he was trying to establish theology on a different ground than what's going on inside of us. And so Barth was a theologian in the Reformed tradition, and uh, just again as kind of setting the stage, um, for our listeners who may be unfamiliar with that term, when we say that Barth was a Reformed theologian, what does that mean specifically? Well, that means he was deeply influenced by the tradition of Reformed theology, which begins with Calvin, who he absolutely adored. He thought when he first it was introduced, he actually didn't study Calvin in his undergrad or I'm not sure what the, the name of his degree was. Uh, but when he discovered Calvin uh, after he made his breakthrough, he was just stunned by his theology. And he, he, he then uh, imbibed on uh, a handful of Reformed theologians to think about to think about the faith. And the reform, uh, probably in the broadest strokes, reform theology just puts a tremendous amount of efforts on the initiative and the sovereignty of God and the whole business of dealing with humankind, with the business of salvation. And that would be where Bart deeply resonated with it because, like he says in some of his later volumes, God did not ask whether he was going to come to us in Christ and die for us on the cross. He just did it. He didn't ask whether he was going to reconcile the world to himself. He didn't ask for permission. He just did it. And our 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 only job is to either say amen or no thanks. And so Bart was doing this in in the kind of German countries, so Germany and Switzerland. And he was doing that in a context that was largely Lutheran. And so if I were to say to my listeners, well, Bart was a Reformed theologian in a land full of Lutherans, they may not understand what that means, but explain to us what that means. Well, okay, here's where you're going to start finding that this is truly an introductory biography. And one of the things I like to remind people who interview me is that I probably did, I, you know, without self-congratulation, did a fairly good job of becoming familiar with the principal secondary material here. But I'm not a, wouldn't, what I, I wouldn't call myself a scholar of Bart in the sense of being aware of primary sources or a deep knowledge of the history of the period. So, uh, I'm, to be frank, I'm sometimes not sure what, because I do read passages in his dogmatics where he just, he, he feels it's necessary to separate himself from Lutherans. And sometimes I'm not quite sure what he's about other than he thinks the law gospel dichotomy is not a really, it's either not a healthy way or not a uh, sufficient way to talk about the nature of God's work in Christ. Uh, although there's long passages in which he has deep appreciation for the way Luther puts things. So you could probably help me hear more than I can help the listeners at this point. Well, and so, I mean, my understanding is that, is that the, the, the differences were not so much 
theological as they were historical and political. So there was bad blood between the Lutherans and the Reformed at some points. And so he, he, he always was sort of treated as a minority. And, he, and a lot of times, because he was coming from the Reformed tradition, my understanding is that Bart was not taken very seriously, particularly in the four years that he was in Göttingen when he was teaching there. That, that, I do remember reading excerpts from his own uh, writings that suggested that he felt very lonely there. Yeah. Yes, for that very reason. Yeah, it was more of a social political reality that he was dealing. He was the only reformed theologian, an entire faculty of Lutherans and others, I guess. I don't know. And, so. and I mean, so for for those that are part of the 20th century, I guess, American Protestant tradition, the notion of, of having sort of really bad blood between different Protestant traditions may may be a foreign thing. I mean, as a as the editor in chief of Christianity today, you may have a better vantage point than I would for those kind of infightings among Protestants. Yeah, I mean, certainly within every, certainly within evangelicalism, any movement that's uh, especially passionate about its about its beliefs and its practice, so evangelicalism would count as that. Uh, there are there are theologians and actually practitioners, pastors, and church leaders who look askance at people who actually theologically are very close to them, mm. <laughs> but are different enough that. They just are suspicious, and they wouldn't serve on the same faculty, or they might not take communion together, or they wouldn't sit on the same panel at a theology conference necessarily. But I think that's less true today, but it's still, you still get that. I've been to, uh, I, for example, I went to a publishing house to give a devotional in, in my Chicagoland area, and I could just tell from the moment I stepped through the door, I was a type of evangelical that people were just a little suspicious of. There what was, do you mean? What do you mean? Just, I mean, there was, uh, they were, wor- I could tell they were worried about what I was going to say and how I was going to say it. I wasn't going to, uh, they tended to be a much more conservative theological expression of evangelicalism than I was. And I, I was sensitive to know, to know that and not, not to push any buttons needlessly, but to try to talk about things we had in common. But one could tell just by the very, uh, there was not the warmth of a greeting that you'd expect. There was a cordial greeting, uh, there was the introduction, but it wasn't, it was cordial and proper and correct, but it wasn't warm and welcoming. <laughs> you know? It was like somebody in the office said, we ought to have Mark Galley here. And they did, and they never invited me back. <laughs> so there you go. I think we've all been in experiences like that, where we've been in a place where we know something's amiss. Well, and so let's flip that over. So we've talked about how Bart related or didn't relate as well to some of his Protestant brothers and sisters. But Bart was also one of the 20th century theologians from the Protestant side that was actually willing to take Catholicism seriously. Is that a fair characterization of him? From what I understand, he was very impressed with Catholicism because uh, Catholics, in a sense, knew what they believed. They tried to ground their their uh, their teachings in Scripture and in a deep uh, working out of theology. Whereas uh, liberal theologians, he just had he had little in common with because he could often they could, he could uh, he could not often find a common ground to begin the conversation because he didn't think they took their own source of theology seriously, mainly scripture, as as he thought it should be taken. Yeah. And and so by liberal theologians, some of the names that we might pull out would be like Ritchel, Schleiermacher, who else? And uh, um, I'm blanking right now, but those are the two. That, Herman William. Uh, is it Wilhelm or William Herman? Yeah. I don't know the first name, but I've yeah, heard yeah. of, I've heard of right. Herman, but I don't know Herman as well as uh, any of the other two. In America, well, in America, there are some theologians that were in his circle early on that broke from him that we now uh, characterize as liberal. So Paul Tillich, uh, Boltman would be two in particular. 
And so we'll come back and we'll talk about yeah. Telic and Boltman in a few minutes. But but for right now, if you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Mark Galley. He's editor-in-chief of the magazine Christianity Today, and he's author of the new book, Karl Barth, an introductory biography for evangelicals. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Mark Galley, editor-in-chief of the magazine Christianity Today. He's author of the new book, Karl Barth, an introductory biography for evangelicals. So a moment ago, we mentioned some of these theologians that were contemporaries of Barth's and maybe those that had just preceded him who were in the liberal tradition. And so some of the names were Schleiermacher, Boltmann, and Tillich. How did Bart get along with Boltmann? How did he get along with Tillich? What was the relationship there? Their personal relationship apparently was was okay. Their theological relationship was, I don't know, bitter enemies. That isn't quite the word. But they, they the, the way they grounded their theology, the, the direction their theology took was radically different. But I was surprised to see in letters that I read late in, you know, late in his life, that if Boltmann was in town, he would be invited over for, I don't know if they had beer or coffee or what they did, but... And same thing with Tillich, and I don't know what they talked about, but when you read about how he critiqued their theology, you'd think he'd want nothing to do with them. But apparently the the nature of theological conversation in Europe is different than I had imagined it to be, that you could have, have serious theological disagreements with a, another theologian and still have a beer with them. One of the more interesting aspects is that uh, he rejects Schleiermacher, especially Schleiermacher's, the foundation of Schleiermacher's theology, this religion is a feeling of dependence. But after he becomes well-known and he has students flocking to him, Bart does, he's surprised at how dismissive they are of him. And he writes, uh, I forget if he wrote it in a letter or where, but he just says, you know, these students need to have a little respect for this man. <laughs> well, I disagree with him, but he was a great theologian, you know? <laughs> so, in fact, when he went back to Germany after the war and he's uh, giving lectures in this church that eventually become the uh, dogmatics and outline, he finds a bust of Schleiermacher that isn't destroyed by the bombing. And he picks it up and takes it back to his office. <laughs> so, so that's doing theology a little different than I've been used to. He, somewhere in his office, there was a bust of the theologian that was apparently his arch enemy. In, yeah, in some... from what I understand. What could American theologians in the 21st century learn from, or just American believers in the 21st century learn from that, that kind of ethic? Especially nowadays when we are divided, uh, certainly divided in all sorts of ways in our country, divided and divisive. I mean, it's not just divided. It's, it's, a, it's a visceral division that we experience at all sorts of levels. Yeah, the ability to engage in vigorous intellectual debate and conversation and not make it personal strikes me as a, a virtue that we could learn something about. I do a lot of interfaith work. I prefer the term multi-faith. Interfaith is when we try to get together with people of other, other religions and we 
try to harmonize in some way. We downplay our differences and we try to say what we have in common and we move forward together. Multi-faith, those are the type of conversations I tend to have where you come together with people of radically different beliefs and you part of the goal of the conversation is to discover how different you are. But to do that in a way that's respectful and to do that in a way in which you're truly trying to listen to another person. I've just come from a lunch with a rabbi in downtown Chicago. We've had many vigorous and interesting conversations. And there are moments when we can say, huh, we're, we surprisingly actually see that pretty similar. But then there are many moments we look at each other and say, we really disagree about that. <laughs> but in that conversation, I still learned something about my own faith, how unique it is. For example, he and I have talked about the nature of forgiveness. And he says, for him, forgiveness has to be earned. And we go round and round on that. I said, no, for the Christian, forgiveness is pure gift, especially when it comes from God. There might be things we have to do after we've sought forgiveness to keep repairing the relationship, but the forgiveness is a gift. And he just says, we just really disagree about that. And I, and I think we really do. It helps me see Christianity is an amazing faith that it teaches this thing that is so counterintuitive to so many people. Is the goal of these kinds of conversations what you characterize as multi-faith conversations? Is it to, uh, so you say that, that a focal point is disagreement. Is the goal of that to learn how to disagree better or to learn to how to disagree less? Learn how to disagree better. Okay. And yeah. so it's not to lessen or to minimize the disagreement. It's to say, not no, at, at the end of the day, we're going to get up and you're going to still be a good, devout Jew. I'm still going to be a good, devout evangelical. Yeah. But we'll know each other better and we'll still have friendship across that difference. Right. And we'll still, yeah, we'll respect each other and in a sense have each other's back when Jewish-Christian relations go sour elsewhere. <laughs> sure. But then what then of, since you come from the evangelical tradition, what then of the Great Commission? Are you not called to make a disciple of this person? Are you not called to I evangelize am. to him I and to, to witness and to him? And he knows that's part of the reason for my conversation. Interesting. Okay. So he knows that I cannot abandon the idea that I want him to become a Christian. Now, he says specifically, he doesn't want me to become a Jew. He wants me to remain a Christian. So that would be one difference between us. And I tell him I, I would like him to become a Christian. And he says, good luck with that. And <laughs> we joke about that. But, you know, obviously, as an evangelical Christian, I believe that the highest understanding of what's going on in the world, the real picture of what's going on in the world happened to us in Christ on the cross and his death and resurrection and his coming again. And that is not only good news, it's the absolute best news ever. And I would not be loving my neighbor if I didn't tell him that's how I've come to see things. And I would wish him to join me in that journey. That would be, that would not be loving. And that would not be honest if I pretended that was not important. And I didn't really believe that. So the evangelism is not an overt, okay, have you heard the four spiritual laws and me trying to talk him into it today? We just had a conversation about the resurrection and I asked him, uh, I told him, here's, the, here's some apologetic arguments for the resurrection that are very convincing to a lot of people. What do you think of them? I wasn't trying to convince him at that moment to start believing in the resurrection, but I suppose, honestly, I was thinking, I'm, I'm wondering why he doesn't believe in the resurrection. It's not like a long-term strategy. Now that I know that he thinks about this, I'm going to, I'm just trying to be a witness for Christ. That is to say, this is how I've come to faith. This is how I understand it. This is the tradition I stand in. My job is to witness it's the Holy Spirit's job to convert. And so I don't feel a need to press the issue. I just have a need to present the gospel as I understand it. How then would you look at a relationship with a person who claims the history of Christianity, 
but who maybe doesn't have that same evangelical bent and orthodox understanding that you've said. So, so it, this is basically bringing us back to the problem that Bart saw with some of these other theologians, and that is they have some of the aspects of the narrative, some of the aspects of the mythology, to use Boltmann's term, yeah. but they lack the miracle and they lack the deep conviction of the scriptural basis and the veracity of scripture. How do you engage and feel when you come to your sort of co-religionists, and I'm air-quoting that, but people who claim the mantle of Christian who you think, I don't want to mischaracterize it, but whom you think maybe are not being Christian in a correct way. That, is, that would not be a bad way of putting it. In some ways, it's more difficult to have uh, congenial conversations with fellow Christians who seem to be missing the point on some issue that I think is a really important issue in the Christian faith. And it does present a more uh, difficult emotional conversation to have those. So I'm part of a denomination that broke away from the Episcopal Church over the authority of Scripture in particular and how it expressed itself on how we understand human sexuality. To leave a church and to leave a specific congregation over that issue, that's an emotional event. I do my best. I think I do a pretty decent job of being cordial and charitable when I'm in conversations with liberal Christians who take a different view of those matters. But it is more painful because it's a little more personal and it hinges on an issue that I thought was so important. I felt I, I couldn't week to week, month to month, participate in a church that I thought was going in the wrong direction, was actually undermining the authority of Scripture in a way that would lead to increasing number of pastoral problems as well as theological problems. For me, theology is, is our attempt to understand the revelation of God in Christ and to try to work out some of the details so that we can live together as Christians in a way that allows us to flourish as the way God intends us to flourish. Often the issue is not just that someone is theologically or doctrinally wrong, I'm putting that in air quotes, it's that their doctrine, I think, will actually not lead to the human flourishing that God intends for us. And that's why it's such a more personal and emotional issue. I was a pastor for 10 years, so I care about people's spiritual development, spiritual maturity. And when I sense there is a a teaching of uh, another Christian, of another tradition that I think actually undermines that or sabotages it or thwarts genuine growth in some way, as I understand scripture to teach, to be teaching us, that just bothers me. <laughs> so, so let me split this hair as finely as I can. Okay. So we've talked about those who would abandon the kind of miraculous claims, you know, Jesus arose from the dead. He was born of a virgin. He and broke, we, he broke bread and and for 5,000, yeah, and, yeah, 5, and, he, and he healed the deaf and the mute. Yeah, yeah and, and yeah. the dead were raised in his presence. And these are not, yeah, these are not just metaphors. These are, they are metaphors, but they're more than metaphors, yeah. What if you were to be in conversation with a, with a co-religionist, a person who claims the mantle of, of Jesus Christ, who, who absolutely would say, you know, hand on the table, hand on the Bible, yes, I believe that all these things happened, and yet still had some of those political or social different. directionalities that were yeah. different. How, I mean... I guess what I'm asking is which would be the more important issue for you in this moment, the belief in the veracity of those scriptural accounts and saying, yes, I will stake my life on the fact that he rose from the dead, or the belief in sort of a complementary marriage model where it's a man and a woman and never a man and a man or a woman right. and a woman. My impression is that I don't know that very many theologians or pastors, fellow th amateur theologians myself who are liberal, uh, blink at the like the resurrection of Jesus Christ anymore, or the miracles. I, th I think uh, in that regard, in the fundamentalist modernist controversy, I, I don't know that, I just think the, the fundamentalists or the evangelicals won. I don't, I don't know that many people stumble over this. The virgin birth might still be a problem for many people, but the miracles of Jesus, 
at least the way I hear liberals uh, preach about the resurrection, it's hard for me to believe that they don't believe something really happened. They might only be able to talk about the empty tomb, whereas, you know, I would be happy to talk about the bodily resurrection, but I'm not sure that's, that's much of a difference. And there is, there is a, an attempt by, uh, as I understand it, liberals to really ground their conclusions in Scripture, too. There is, a, there is an appreciative Scripture. Now, how they handle Scripture, how they interpret Scripture, I have problems with that sometimes. The conclusions they come to, naturally. So I'd say uh, it's not just those formal, that's, I guess that's what I'm getting at. You know, forgive me if I'm denigrating anyone, but for, to, for a person like me, certainly, to have in, intellectual integrity that coincides with what I read in scripture and what I see in church history. Those are kind of like the base or the foundation, but things can still go wrong after that. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Mark Galley, editor-in-chief of the magazine Christianity Today and author of the new book, Karl Barth, an introductory biography for evangelicals. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Mark Galley, editor-in-chief of Christianity Today and author of the new book, Karl Barth, an introductory biography for evangelicals. One thing that struck me in the book, you, you make this, this passing comment that Bart believed that the most powerful idolatry that he saw in his day was that of religion itself. And I'm just wondering if you'd be willing to unpack what you think Bart meant by that. What resonates with me when I read those passages, those come from his uh, Epistle to the Romans, his commentary on the Epistle to the Romans, is this notion that we can take, in a sense, the trappings of religious faith, the weekly worship, the, the singing of hymns, the construction of worship that is beautiful and edifying, the crafting of a sermon that is not only beautiful but thoughtful, the living out one's life according to the Ten Commandments. Uh, to, we can do that in a way that suggests that we're kind of in charge of this whole operation. In fact, What's so subtle about it is we can feel and act like we're in charge of the operation, all the while saying we're giving all the glory to God. It's a very subtle thing that goes on in a religion. And so this infects not only religions we tend to have deep disagreements with, but it's also this attitude, this way of living the, the, the religious life out infects and in a sense subverts Christians all the time. So it becomes an idol in the sense that we begin to actually worship either the religion itself and its, its outworkings, or we worship ourselves because we're the ones kind of crafting this religious life that we think is noteworthy and praiseworthy, when in fact, according to Bart and most Protestant theologians, it is God who, in Christ who justifies our lives. Bart himself also, from what I gather, was, kind of, was a low church reformed pastor and teacher. One of my favorite anecdotes in the book uh, that I mentioned in the book is that he went to an Anglican service and it just frustrated him, apparently, because he, he afterwards he said, you know, they said the Our Father two or three times. They said the Creed. They said all these things. And he said, I can just imagine God saying, enough already. I've heard you. <laughs> Coming out of the Anglican tradition, I cannot help but laugh because it is that way sometimes. We just kind of revel in our liturgy and our proper forms. But so there's something personal going on as well as theological for Bart. He just didn't have much patience for liturgical 
stuff. So that puts in my mind uh, an old song, that an old praise song that I used to hear, I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you, Jesus. Yeah. And when I hear those lyrics now, could we characterize that as a Bardian reflex? Is that? In some ways, yeah, because it does express the core of his theology. Uh, some, someone was said to have asked him, so what, how would you summarize all the dogmatics? And he is said to have replied, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that really is the core. It's very Christocentric, and it's Christocentric because it's grounded in Scripture. There are worse ways to characterize Bart's theology. But that, that praise chorus speaks to an emotional experience of Jesus. Very personal. Okay. It's one-to-one. That's more of an evangelical, a, a Jesus-y way of talking about it. Bart would just like, I don't think he would have much sympathy with that. It would be too pietistic and too emotional. It's more about, I'm coming to you. We have this personal relationship where Bart seems to want to talk about Jesus Christ as the Savior, as the person by whom the world has been reconciled, this, this more cosmic, big figure. Now, I do suspect, although I found no evidence of it, and maybe as more and more of his letters and personal papers are translated, someone will discover it. I just, my gut instinct is that he had some sort of powerful personal religious experience sometime in his pastorate because one of the points he's most insistent on throughout his dogmatics, the parts I've read, and I'm not going to admit that I I pretend that I've read every, every page. He keeps coming back to the point is when we're talking about Jesus Christ, we're not talking about him in the abstract. Jesus Christ is not a principle. Jesus Christ is not an idea. He is a person who is a reality and all our theology arises from him, not the Christological principle. So there's something very personal going on, but he, I couldn't find hardly any passages that talked about how faith affected him personally. Well, and you mentioned just a moment ago something that arose in his pastorate, and you come back to this at several points in the book. He started out as a pastor. He began a lot of his theological reflection as a pastor, and, and in many ways we might characterize him at his core as kind of a, a, a pastor throughout his life. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, that's a fair characterization. And he wrote his dogmatics with pastors in mind, with, their, uh, with the weekly obligation they have to present the, the gospel in, through the sermon and through the reading of Scripture. And he never forgot that. In fact, that's, from what I gather, uh, pastors in Germany and Switzerland, they just were just dying for every edition of the, every volume of the dogmatics to come out because they really felt like what they'd gotten from 19th century liberalism just didn't give them anything to preach about in the end. In fact, you read this in Bart's early sermons before he had his theological conversion. They are just so drearily moralistic. It's just painful to read them sometimes. I mean, and after a while, you just go, I, I, why would I want to go to that church? All he's, all he's going to do is shake my finger at me and how I'm not doing good and I should be doing better. It's like, you can only do that for so many weeks before people start rolling their eyes and stop listening to you. You also note that at least early on in his pastorate, when he was in Zoffenville, he was allied with the socialists and the communists. Yeah. Like he was definitely influenced by Marx. He was influenced by the leftists. And there's even a, a, a point where you quote him saying that Marxism is, or socialism is sort of the gospel in our times. This would be an example of where he's an advocate for orthodoxy, but I would assume that you would find that those kind of political ends that he's seeing as a result of that would be things that I would assume you'd take issue with politically. 
Okay, I'm not sure of what we're talking about before his theological conversion, his commitment to socialism, well, or I'm, afterward, because oh, he certainly committed both before and after to socialism. Okay. Yeah. And, well, and, help, help to clarify that for me then, because I yeah. may have missed that part. Yeah. In his pastorate, uh, I don't know what his political leanings before he came to the pastorate, even if they were more leftist, they were certainly energized by what he saw about the exploitation of the workers by the factory owners, some of whom were attending his church, some of whom apparently stopped attending when he started preaching about this. <laughs> Uh, so he has this deep social conscience, and he keeps that, that social conscience as part of who he is for the rest of his life. And his commitment to socialism is pretty profound. I was just reading something on a, a blog today, some quotes from him about how deeply distrustful he was of capitalism. So he was never a big fan of capitalism by any stretch of the imagination and was deeply sympathetic to socialism, so much so that at the end of his life, he had a really hard time criticizing the Soviet Union and a really easy time criticizing the United States. And he tried to express this in a way that he thought was theological and above the fray, but you can't help but think his political commitments were deeply biased, his analysis of the political situation in the 1950s. So that was part of his uh, preaching early on, before his conversion, is that the congregation should, should care more about these social issues. The sermons I've read afterwards, especially as he becomes a mature theologian, he just doesn't go there at all anymore, even though personally... He's personally involved in politics and has definite, passionate political views that is no longer the subject of his sermons. Yeah. He's also a theologian who is active at the time of the rise of Nazi Germany. Yes. And, and it would be important for us to talk about kind of his reaction to the rise of Nazism, and in particular his theological reaction to the rise of Nazism. Yeah. So that was the second reason I wrote the book. Most people don't know that he has these two amazing historical arcs in his life. He pretty much single-handedly undermined 19th century liberal theology. He goes up against the giants. He goes up against his teacher, Harnack, and others. Harnack would consider him either insane or a crazy person for his views. I mean, the, the, he describes their conversation at one point. It's just amazing that he had the courage to just stand up against that. Everything he'd been taught by everybody, and he basically says, no, that is not right. The gospel, the book of Romans especially, says something really different here. That's just, he's just an amazing a man of great courage and insight at that, for that. And then in 1930s Germany, he's one of the few people who sees the danger that Hitler is. And he, again, only a handful of people, Bonhoeffer being the other more famous one, stand up to this threat and just say, no, it's just not it's not only bad government, it's, it's bad theology because, of course, Hitler was trying to raise himself up into, a, into the status of some sort of godlike figure. What led to his conversion in the First World War was when he saw all his mentors, leading theologians of the day, basically get caught up in German patriotism. And because they grounded their theology in this feeling of dependence and feeling in general, they are just thinking that they're swept up and thinking this is the will of God, that we go to war. It's obvious. And that same thing starts to happen in Germany, where after a country that had been devastated by the war and the, and the depression, along comes this great leader, and all of a sudden people are feeling really good about themselves. There's a lot of self-esteem going on in Germany, and people are thinking, this is not an accident. This must be the movement of God, and Hitler must be our savior, small s. Some people were confusing him with big s, but... And Bart says, no, <laughs> he's demonic, is what he basically doesn't say that, but he says it in so many words. And the thing I appreciate about him is not only his courage to, to battle that, which eventually leads to his exile, is that the way he wants to battle that 
is theological. And I think that that is a gift. I, I don't have a whole lot of hope that this will happen, but one, one a writer always has hope. And that is that he could become a model for us for how Christians address the social scene, the political scene. And the way he does it, he does it theologically. That is to say, he's the main author of a declaration that was written in 1934, um, signed by uh, dozens of uh, German pastors called the Barman Declaration, both a critique of what's happening in Germany, but an affirmation of what the church should stand for in that. The name Hitler is never mentioned. Fascism is never mentioned. No political acts of Hitler or the fascist government are mentioned. It's about Jesus Christ being Lord and our, our devotion to him. But the way it's crafted and the time it's crafted, nobody could read that and not say, this guy is blasting Hitler and the, and the Nazis. Oh my gosh. In fact, Hitler got the message and immediately started persecuting anybody that signed it. He wasn't stupid. But, uh, but what we do nowadays with our political pronouncements is we basically let the political language and the political narrative dominate how we're going to respond to a particular issue, whether it's race, nuclear arms, or it's world hunger. We basically accept the narrative, which is a political narrative, and use that language to help us understand how we're supposed to respond to it. And, oh yeah, we're Christians, so let's throw in a Bible verse about caring for the sojourner, and now we've done our theological work. And we haven't really thought, we haven't really stopped to think about, but it seems to me that the church is not being the church is if that's what it mainly does, mostly does, or in fact, in some cases, in some cases what happens, that's all it starts doing. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Mark Galley, editor-in-chief of Christianity Today and author of the new book, Karl Barth, an introductory biography for evangelicals. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Mark Galley. He's editor-in-chief of Christianity Today and author of the new book, Karl Barth, an introductory biography for evangelicals. As editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, you are sitting at, in many ways, kind of pinnacle point of a lot of fulcrum conversations right now. As an outsider, I'm, I'm Roman Catholic um, and had been raised atheist, and so I, I sort of have moved, you know, kind of around evangelicalism and have been a, an observer of it. Managed to avoid it. It, it seems to me, <laughs> but I was raised in the Deep South, and so the, the idioms of evangelicalism are known to me. And it, yeah. se- it seems to me from a distance like evangelicalism is really at a point where it is, it's in a crisis of, of conscience, that there are those who want to pull it in a direction hard to the right. There are those that want to pull it, I think of a guest on the show, Rachel Held Evans, who wants mm-hmm. to pull it more to the left, or maybe in a more liberal or more hospitable direction. I don't know right. what the best way to characterize right. it is. But you're well positioned to sort of look at the landscape and to tell our listeners kind of what you see. So I'm very interested if you'd be willing to take a moment yeah. or two. And what, what do you see in evangelicalism yeah. right now? Well, there's a couple things going on. I do think in some ways we have lost our first love in this regard. I think evangelicalism certainly has been expressed in American history, but you see evangelicalism in the broadest sense of the term uh, as a movement that you see all through church history. Perry Miller, the historian, calls it called Puritanism an expression of Augustinian piety or the Augustinian mood. 
And I think that Augustinian piety, Augustinian mood is characteristic of the, of the, of the Puritans, certainly, but it's certainly characteristic of the evangelicals where there's this deep sense of conflict about the state of the human soul. And this notion that when I stand up against the goodness and holiness of God, it's, there, it's a crisis moment. And that crisis needs to be resolved in some way. I cannot continue to live without resolving that crisis. And that crisis is resolved through faith. And of course, during the revivals, especially, it was a very dramatic and it was a bodily response. It was a, the, the anguish was bodily, people writhing, and the, the response was bodily, the tears and the joy. We've retained some of that bodily reaction to God. We retain this notion of a personal relationship with Jesus, but it's become, in a lot of ways, we don't wrestle with human depravity anymore. We don't wrestle with human sin and our, and our sinfulness anymore because we are told week after week in our worship services that God loves us just the way we are, which is true. Okay. All the things we say are true, but they're just so, they're, they're so thin and they're, they only represent one part of the biblical teaching. We have these services in which they seem to be uh, nothing but spiritual cheerleading and pep rallies to get us to feel better by the time we leave the service. The songs ask for things that we don't even know what we're asking for. We say, Lord, we praise you for your glory. May your glory come down and fill us and make your presence known to us. As if that's a purely singular, simple thing. When we, we don't seem to realize that when that actually happens in the Bible, people are scared to death. Think about Isaiah. when Isaiah is an example. Yeah. Or when after Moses has this confrontation with God, he, is, he has the glory of God around him, and people can't even look at him because of that. Peter sees Jesus do a miracle and he realizes he's in the presence of the divine and he says, Lord, depart from me. So we ask for the thing glibly without recognizing what we're really asking for. So our our faith in a lot of ways has become thin and that, that you can see results of that in all sorts of ways. Now, a lot of the things that people are troubled about evangelicals in general, for example, their, uh, their, their supposed co-option by the Republican Party and their, uh, where their political commitments seem to trump their religious and ethical commitments. Uh, to me, it's like, well, what else is new in this regard? Christians of any sort, this would be true of Catholics, it'd be true of liberal Protestants, it would be true of evangelicals, it'd be true of Anabaptists. We live in a country that's highly politicized, and it's really difficult not to let politics begin to shape your, your commitments over your Christian commitments. It's just a really hard thing to do. And it may be true that uh, in many segments of evangelicalism, it's the Republican Party at prayer, but there are many elements of Christianity in which it's nothing more than the Democratic Party at prayer. That's, it's, just, it's just part of the, the sad, sadness of the human situation. Uh, there is a there is a great deal of criticism and just criticism of evangelicals that we don't care enough about the environment as we should. We don't care enough about race relations as we should. We're not sacrificial to the for the hungry as we should be. Uh, we are too materialistic. And I, as a pastor, I'm going. Well, I was a pastor for ten years. Duh. Yeah. When you're dealing with Christian people who are who are trying to mature in Christ, you're going to find all sorts of flaws in them. So, Mark Galley, given that, what keeps you hopeful? What keeps me hopeful is the fact that my hope is not in the fact that if we work a little harder and pray a little harder, people will actually start living and doing the right thing. That is not a way to ground it. My, my hope is ultimately grounded in the fact that Christ, in fact, will, and will someday transform the world as he wishes altogether. In the meantime, history also shows that we can make a profound difference in our own lives and in our world by just attending to 
the little things he's called us to. And I use an analogy of just because I know that my life eventually finds its fulfillment only in the kingdom of heaven, uh, with a heaven, new heaven and new earth coming down, doesn't mean that I don't try to take care of my home and my property that I live on now. I want it, I want it to be a decent place to live that actually helps me enjoy my life and the life of my family. The same thing applies to our communities. Uh, just because we believe that these things will only be ultimately solved in the eschaton doesn't mean we don't work to try to do carve out little areas in our world. We try to make our school districts a little better. We try to make sure African Americans are treated fair when it comes to housing. Uh, we know that, like in a house, there's always a project that needs to be done and that eventually that house is going to crumble to the ground and decay no matter how much we work at it. And in some generations, some bulldozers come up and plow it over because it just falls apart. Doesn't stop us from planting another garden, repainting a room, uh, adding a deck, uh, and the same way in our society. Even though we know that we're only going to make partial progress and that some of our work will be burnt up, we still have to live together now. And that uh, God has given us the capacity to actually work together to make those things happy. So in a social sphere, I think uh, there's every reason. We have evidence all around us that people can make a difference in these small ways all the time. We all have experiences of people who have made a difference in their local school district, um, even to national politics. I mean, nobody would deny that the civil rights laws of the 1960s make America a better place than it was in 1950s. Is it a perfect place? No. Will we ever completely solve the racial problem? I really doubt it. Can we make it better here and there? I sure think we can. I have no doubt that we can. Well, Mark Galley, I have enjoyed talking to you. The book was wonderful for me because having read Bart years ago, it was nice to just revisit him as a thinker. And I hope, I wish you great success. And I hope that many, many people read it and are enlivened to this thinker who was just so important for, just as you say, not only the 20th, 20th century, but also for our contemporary day. Well, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. We've been speaking today with Mark Galley. He is editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, and he's author of many books, including Jesus, Mean and Wild, The Unexpected Love of an Untamable God, Beyond Bells and Smells, The Wonder and Power of Christian Liturgy, and Beautiful Orthodoxy, The Goodness, Truth, and Beauty of Life in Christ. We've been discussing his most recently released book, Karl Barth, an introductory biography for evangelicals. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kijif. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.